You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. We'll turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Uh, while you're finding your place, I, I, I want to share something with you that the Lord put on my heart this morning in my prayer time, and, and that is this. My job um, as pastor and what God has called me to is, is to proclaim the truth and, and try to persuade you uh, that this is true. I cannot um, force you to put your faith in Jesus. I can't force you to be happy about it. I, I can't force you to be in awe of it. The, I rely upon the authority of God's Word and the work of the Holy Spirit. My job is to proclaim the truth. The Holy Spirit is the one who deals with your heart, opens your eyes, and uh, at some points breaks your heart, brings you to repentance, seeking God's forgiveness in your life. But I cannot... It is beyond my job description to bring you to a place where you are in awe of what God has done. That is a work of the Holy Spirit in you. All I can do is present you the truth the best way that I can, illustrate it the best way that I can, so that then you see Christ high and lifted up. You see the gift of salvation for what it really is, incredible, amazing, and beautiful. We really don't have enough words in the English language to even describe it. So, this morning... In Galatians 3, Paul is, is going to yet set before us the beauty of this gospel. The beauty of it, the grand, just the grand scope of what it means to be saved by grace through faith rather than works. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it was those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them all shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Hmm. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree 
so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's word. Let's bow together. Father, we praise you and we worship you. We adore you. Because, Father, the, the breadth and the depth of what Paul is describing here is, is far deeper and far wider than I've got words. So, Father, I, I need your help this morning that, Father, that we could see you high and lifted up, that the Holy Spirit could peel back the layers of the world that has crept into all of our lives. And that we can see with fresh eyes, spiritual eyes, the beauty and the grandeur and the love and the grace and the forgiveness that we are made right by faith, not by our works. Father, break our hearts this morning and open our eyes. Father, may this not be just another Sunday. May it not just be another set of songs that we've sung may not just be another sermon Father I'm going to do exactly what you asked me to do as best I can and the results I leave in your hands but knowing that your word does not return void you will do that work in the lives of your people as you see fit and we praise you for it we ask all this in the powerful name of Christ Amen Imagine that you have a a wealthy relative. I'm talking like super wealthy. And and one day this, we'll say uncle, calls you up and says, I've I've got a gift for you. Swing by my house today and we'll share with you this gift that I've got for you. You have no idea what to expect. It's Christmas time. What kind of gift is it going to be? So you, you go to your wealthy uncle's house and he sits you down and he sets out some pictures there of this beautiful beachfront home in Jamaica. I mean, it's like beachfront. Blue water's right there. Beautiful home. uh, Fully furnished. It's all there. And your uncle looks at you and says, way before you were ever born, I have purposed in my heart that I'm going to give you this house. And not only am I going to give you this house, this property, it's all going to be, matter of fact, I've already got the deed right here. Already, I've already got all the legal stuff taken care of. It is yours. Here are the pictures. Right here it is. It's yours. And not only am I going to give you this house and give you this land, I am also going to pay for all of the expenses, all the taxes, all the insurance. There will not be one expense that you have to pay. The power bill, cable bill, all of it, it's included. For as long as you own this property, even after I die, my blessing for you and this gift for you is going to continue right on, and I'm going to give it all to you and to your family, and it's yours. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be an incredible thing, right? You know what happens? I don't know if you've ever received like a, a really extravagant gift, uh, maybe at Christmas time or, or maybe, maybe at your anniversary or maybe, maybe when you got married, maybe one set of parents or another gave you a, a beautiful uh, maybe a honeymoon that you didn't expect, you're completely surprised. But, but you know what our typical response is when someone gives us an extravagant gift? It's, it's insane. It really is. I've done it. You've done it. 
well, well, listen, let me, let me, let me pay something here. Let me, uh, let, me, let me take care of the taxes on this place. Let me, let me just pay for the taxes. This is way more than I ever deserve. Don't, don't do all this. I will pay for the insurance or I'll pay for the taxes. You don't have to do that. Where does that come from? Why do we do that? I think it's because of pride. I think in that moment, we can't imagine that anyone would give us something without any strings attached. So what we do is we try to attach strings to it to make ourselves feel better, that we've somehow earned it, that we don't really deserve this, that, that somehow this is beyond what I should receive. So therefore, I'm going to throw some works at it. I'm going I'm to do some things to try to earn it and try to, try to earn your favor when the person sitting across from you, your uncle, is already saying to you, look, there's, there's nothing you have to do. All you have to do is buy a plane ticket, sell your house, sell all your stuff, and just, and just move to Jamaica. It's yours. All you have to do is go claim it by faith. Receive it by faith. Well, I, you know, I don't know. I, there's got to be something, something up with this. this, this can't, maybe, maybe my uncle's got some kind of angle. Maybe, maybe the house is filled with termites, or maybe, maybe it's in a fire zone or something. There's something wrong. Why do we do that? It's because we default back to our own works. We default back to this idea of earning it. And man, our Western American culture doesn't help with this because our American Western culture tells us that anything worth having is something you have to earn. And guess what happens? We bring that right into our walk with Jesus. That American Western culture of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps when it comes to salvation, we look at it and go, man, what an incredible gift. Wow, how beautiful it is. Yes, it's by grace. Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. But there's something I've got to do. There's got to be a catch here. Someone asked me this week, I said, you, you seem to be rather passionate about this. Yes, I am. I'll tell you why. Because at age 25, I had a brother who was more mature in the faith, to sit me down and finally once in my life helped me to see that the salvation that I experienced at age 16 was not because of something I did. Blew my mind. And it was right there in Scripture. I'd seen it. I'd heard it. I'd heard about God's grace my whole life. But I wasn't living in God's grace. I was, I was living in this place of, yes, God has given me a gift, but I've got to keep doing stuff to earn it. And this brother sits me down multiple times that we walk through Scripture together and the scales of my confusion fall off my eyes. And for the first time in my life, I realize that God loves me right where I am, that there's nothing he's expecting me to do to earn his love and grace. And oh my goodness, it changed everything. My worship, the idea of worship changed the idea of reading God's Word rather than it being a burden and something I had to do became something I loved to do because I did it as an act of worship back to God not to earn something from Him. You get where I'm going here. Folks, there were some shackles that fell off me that day. So yeah, I am deeply excited about the idea of justification by faith alone, not by your works. My question is, and what I wrestled with in prayer this morning in my office, is are you excited about that? Is it just another thing, another sermon, another song, another Sunday, another Christmas, where we buy some gifts and we light a tree and we get together and we eat too much and 
Then we take stuff back that we don't like because we got the receipt, and next thing you know, it's January 1, and you're signing up for the Planet Fitness again like you did last year. My hope and my prayer has been that we collectively as a church, especially those who've been born again, can come to this place of deep awe for what God has done. And taking you from death to life. This morning, my prayer time, I didn't even want to leave. I, the Lord was speaking and just tearing me up. And I, did, I didn't want to come down here. I really, I love to preach, but I'm telling you, what was happening up there this morning just broke my heart. I'm, I, 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 did, I wanted to stay right there. And the Lord brought me to remembrance of the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain with Jesus. They see this incredible thing of, of Jesus glorified. And Peter says, oh, man, we got, we got to set up an altar right here. I, I wanted to stay right up there. And I was on my face before God. I just wanted to stay there. I heard Jesus say, remember when I was up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and I told him, no, we can't stay up here. We got to go down. There's ministry to do. We, we, we got to go back down. There's things you have to do. There's things I have to do, and that is to proclaim the truth of God's word to you so that we can see collectively together the beauty of this gospel, this good news. And my prayer this morning, my prayer has been, well, ever since I've been your pastor, is that we could experience revival where our eyes see Christ high and lifted up and we see our salvation for what it is, that we were dead and on our way to hell and Jesus stepped in and called us out of darkness into light. I want you to go on with me on this journey. I want you to be excited, but I can't, I can't make you do that. I can't, I can't force you to do that. That's got to be something the Holy Spirit does for you. Paul's going to make a pretty strong argument here, the same argument he's been making. He's going to walk around it. He's going to focus on it from different angles. And today what he's going to do is he's going to pose six questions in six verses. I'm going to summarize all those questions into one because it really does kind of cycle around one big question. And it deals with the personal experience that the church at Galatia has experienced. Their personal experience. Now, that's not always the strongest argument because your personal experience can be anything under the sun. But what Paul's going to do is he's going to say, you have been born again. And as a result, you have experienced some things. And the question is, is have, you, have you experienced those things as a result of your good works or by the work of God? And, and then he's going to move us into six verses from the Old Testament. Galatians being the earliest New Testament writing, Paul did not have the full canon of Scripture. It was not written yet. So he's going to take us back into the Old Testament, and he's going to do something amazing there. He's going to show us that salvation in the Old Testament is no different than salvation in the New Testament. It is still by faith. Now, you may be wondering at this point, well, wait a minute, I thought, I thought salvation was by works in the Old Testament because they had to go to the temple and sacrifice all these animals and they had the Ten Commandments and the other commandments and they had to keep all those commandments. And as long as they did, then God acceptable. You could not be more wrong. <laughs> There's not a different God of the Old Testament versus a God of the New Testament. He's the same. And the way he is working and the way he is calling people, well, to redemption is exactly the same. It is by faith and he will show us that. So let's take a look at it. Let's pick it up in verse 1. He says, well, how is it, Galatians, 
that you are so bewitched. That word bewitched, the Greek word behind it, it's the only place that Paul uses this word. And it's the idea that the church has had a curse placed on it. Now, he's not saying there's witchcraft. What he's saying is, is how in the world could this church who's heard the gospel return so quickly to try and to accomplish the law? Notice what he says in the next part. He says, he says, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, Paul is not saying that there were people in Asia Minor, people in this area of Galatia, that were in Jerusalem and saw Jesus crucified firsthand. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is, is that when Paul entered this area and began to proclaim the gospel, he did so in such a way that it was almost as though they were there seeing Jesus crucified firsthand. So when, Jesus, when Paul proclaims Jesus crucified, Paul did it in such a way that they were transported in their mind to Jerusalem outside the city walls at the base of Golgotha looking squarely at Jesus dying and bleeding to death on a cross. It's powerful. He says, so for those of you whose eyes were opened and you realize that Jesus is in fact the only way of salvation, why in the world would you let anyone bewitch you into going back and keeping the law. So now what Paul is going to do is he's going to throw six questions out and he's going to throw them rapid fire and it's going to deal with their experience as believers. Look what he says, verse 2. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? There's your first question. Actually, who's bewitched you is the first question. That's the second question. Verse 3. Are you so foolish? Paul doesn't use that word foolish but just a few times in the New Testament, he uses it twice in the letter to the church at Galatia right here in this chapter. He says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if it indeed was in vain? He, he says, does, does he who supplies the Spirit to you now work miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing by faith? So, so Paul fires off these six questions, and here's how I want to summarize all six of those questions for you. And this is the question for you. Is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the good works that he has done in your life, is that the result of you being a good person or is that the result of you placing faith in Jesus? So the idea being is that you have been so good, you have kept the law so well that God has decided that you've gotten in so good with him that God is going to indwell you with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's going to do all these works in your life. That's one option, that you're just so good. That you have, you have met God's standard of perfection, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. You've met that standard of perfection so well that God was so impressed with you. He says, here, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to give you all the blessings that accompany the indwelling of the very God in you. He asks the church, he says, do you really believe that? you really believe you've been that good? You've kept the law that well? The, the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people has been one of the things that the church has really wrestled with, specifically between the Jews and the Gentiles. And we talked about it with Acts 15, that one of the startling, amazing things to those who were Jews who came to faith in Christ, remember, we have the upper room. We have the 120 in the upper room. The Holy Spirit falls. They are indwelt for the first time in human history. The Holy Spirit lives inside of the 120 in the upper room. They spill out of the upper room. Peter preaches. 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Now, these are Jews who are now putting their faith in Jesus as Messiah. 
And the ministry among the Jews continue in Jerusalem. But eventually we get to the point where the gospel breaks out of Jerusalem and goes all the way to unheard of place called Samaria, a group of people that the Jews hated with a passion. And you know what we find there? Not only are they putting their faith in Jesus, but here is the mind-blowing part. They are receiving the Holy Spirit just like the Jews who are now Christians in Jerusalem. In other words, God's work among the Gentiles is no different than the work among the Jews. So this, this puts Peter on his heels. This puts the whole Jerusalem church on their heels. They're like, you mean to tell us that God is going to invite the Gentiles into the kingdom of God? How in the world is that even possible? And so the Holy Spirit's work among them, Paul uses that as evidence to say that could not have been the result of you just simply being good. Notice what he says. He says, are you so foolish, verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, you're now being perfected by the flesh. In other words, your growth in Christ, could that be that you're just so good or is it because of the Holy Spirit in you? That, that the life that you came out of and the life you now live, is that the result of you being good or is that the result of God's work in you as a gift of his grace? He says not only that, but the Holy Spirit has been doing works among them. Verse 4 he said, did you suffer so many things in vain? And if indeed it was in vain, in other words, the works the Holy Spirit's been doing in their life, if the Holy Spirit was the result of works, then that's more about you than it is God. And therefore, a lot of the things that you've experienced is actually in vain. But then he says this. He says this, did you suffer so many things? And he says, verse 5, does he who supply the Spirit to you and work miracles among you? See, what Paul's doing here is he's saying, take a look around at what God is doing in your life. And there's only one conclusion you can come from. There's only one conclusion that you can come to. And that is that God is graciously working in your life because he loves you, not because you're so good and so righteous by keeping the law. Working miracles. My prayer for you this Christmas has been and will continue to be that this would not be just another Christmas. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly concerned for my own walk with Christ, but also for yours, that we, we get in this mode of doing things that we always do, our traditions and the things we do at Christmas, and it takes our eyes off of the beauty and the reality of God with us. God with flesh on, a virgin conceiving of a child, that we don't have time to even think about that because we've got gifts to buy and trees to light and meetings to go to and all this work to get done on our job before we take our break. And then we got to come back at the first of the year and start all over again. And we're so consumed with all of this that we, we don't have any awe at Christmas anymore. Our awe is given to something else. What kind of miracles is God working around you? You ever thought about that? We had our... Uh, preschool Christmas production this week. And I want you to tell you, I want to tell you, it was the best show in town. Not a better show than our preschool kids on this stage singing three songs. We had a building full of people. Grandparents, great-grandparents, uncles, aunts, everybody was here. And it was beautiful. It was, and, and when I looked at this stage, I saw all the kids. Yeah, some were crying. Some were singing. Some were so happy to be here, they didn't even know there was anybody in the room. And it was just a mixed bag, and it was beautiful. And when I look up here at these kids, and we're getting to teach them God's word, and these parents have entrusted these kids to us, I can't help but say, God, you are awesome to allow us. To even the responsibility to do this, it's miraculous. 
It's beautiful. That, that sun that is shining behind all these clouds, this beautiful rain that we're having today, it's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. That beautiful day is not contingent upon whether the sun is shining and the sky is blue. The fact that I got up, breathed God's air, that my heart is beating in my chest this morning. I get to spend another day with my family and my wife. That I get to drink some good water and I get to have some good lunch. That I get to go home to a warm home. Fathers, folks, let me tell you, that is a gift of God's hand in my life. And I don't want to just walk by that. That I get to fellowship with you. I get to do life with you. I get to have friendships with you and hear what God is doing in your life. I get to invest in you in this kingdom work that we've been called to. The miraculous, I look around at his creation. I look at his son in the pages of scripture. I look at where he brought me from. I look at the failures I've made in my life and, and that God didn't turn his back on me. I think of the prayers that he's answered over and over and over again from the simplest to the most deep desires of my heart. I look back and I see God's hand at work and folks, it's a miracle. It's miraculous. The birth of a child. Another anniversary. Another Lord's Day to get to worship together corporately. It's all the work of God in your life. Are you slowing down long enough to even see it? Are you just running headlong through this life, depressed and full of anxiety because you think God has abandoned you? Your circumstances say that God has abandoned you. Satan is telling you that God has abandoned you. When in fact, if you're one of his children, it couldn't be more opposite than that. The miracles of God. Paul says, could that have happened as a result of you just being good? Absolutely not. He says, he says here, he supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, and he does works. Did this come by works of the law, by hearing by faith? Now Paul is going to begin to take us into the Old Testament, and he's going to be able to argue that justification, being right with God, is by faith, not by works. So let's take a look at the first. I'm not going to have you turn to all of these verses. And so what I'm going to do with these six Old Testament verses that Paul uses, I'm going to tell you where they are. And, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to pose a question that he's answering to the church in Galatia in all churches of all day through these six verses. Let's look at the first one. Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the first question that Paul is going to answer is, was Abraham justified by works or was he justified by faith? Now, for the Jewish person of the day, for the Judaizers who are creeping into this church, here's how they would answer that question. They would say that Abraham was made right with God because of his works. And the first work was Abraham's circumcision. He's the first Man to be commanded by God, the first man to undergo that right. In Genesis chapter 17, we see that. So the argument would be is that, that Abraham was made righteous by doing the works of God, that he left his homeland, that he, that he leaves his homeland and he goes off and eventually he's circumcised and eventually he is, 
keeping the laws that God gave him at that point. And as doing such, God accepted him. Paul's going to argue something different. Paul's going to argue that in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed God, and because of his faith in God, God justified Abraham. In other words, God accepted Abraham not because Abraham was a good man, not because Abraham was circumcised years later. God justified Abraham by his faith. What faith? Abraham says, or God says to Abraham, or Abram at the time, he says, Come, go with me. I'm going to take you to a land that I will show you, and I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to do all these things in your life. And you know what Abraham did? Abraham believed it, and he acted on it. So for Abraham, it wasn't just an ascent in his knowledge where he says, oh, yeah, God, I believe you. No, Abraham believed him, and he went to work. And it was his faith that justified him, not the works of righteousness that he did later in worship to God. So Paul says to these Judaizers and the people in this church, Abraham was justified by faith, just like you. It wasn't because of his works. The promises that, that God would make to Abraham were outlandish. I mean, they were preposterous. They, they were beyond human reasoning. So, for example, God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation, and your offspring are going to be like the sand on the beach or the stars in the sky. Well, Abraham has a huge problem at that point. You know what it was? He and his wife are way past childbearing years, and they've not been able to bear a son. They've not been able to bear any children. Way past. So here's God saying to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to give you offspring. And you know what Abraham does? Even though in his world and in his life, everything argued against that promise ever coming true, you know what Abraham does? Abraham believes God and acts on it. And as such... God says, you are made right, not by your works, but by your faith. So was Abraham justified by works? No, Paul says he was justified by faith. Look at verse 10. We get to the, I'm sorry, let's back up to verse 7. I'm about to jump down too fast here. Verse 7. Know then that it was those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Now, Folks, there, there is no way I have the vocabulary to be able in the time that I've got to give you the breadth of what's being said in verses 7 through 9. It, it, is, it is incredible. It is deep, it's deeper than the ocean, and it, and it's, it is bigger than the cosmos. Get, get this. Paul says, number one, that the Gentiles are going to become sons of Abraham. Now, that would have been offensive to the Jew of, of, of any part of this history to say that a Gentile could become a son of Abraham, unheard of. They're unworthy. They are sinners. They are, they are beyond God's grace. They are a broken race of people. We are the descendants of Abraham. There is no way a Gentile, a Gentile could be a son of Abraham? But wait, there's more. And the scripture foreseen, this is verse 8, listen, listen to this that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Get this. Again, mind-blowing. That within the covenant promises in Genesis chapter 12, we have the statement in those covenant promises that all of the nations of the world would be blessed by Abraham and his descendants, his offspring, particularly one offspring. 
So here is God preaching the gospel to Abraham. That's what Paul says. And inside of the gospel that he is preaching to Abraham, now Abraham is simply believing what God is saying in that moment, but Paul goes back and says, when God says that all the nations will be blessed as a result of Abraham, he is preaching the gospel to Abraham and is contained in these words. He says, in you, all nations shall be blessed. How is that possible? How is it possible? Well, there's one offspring in the line of Abraham. Jesus Christ, who was foreseen by the prophets, and because of what he did on the cross and his resurrection, his ministry, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all that that is, that becomes a blessing to the entire world. How? The Great Commission. As people are transformed, as, as people out of Jerusalem spill over into Samaria and Judea, and eventually the gospel begins to spread from Jerusalem around the globe. Paul then takes it to Asia Minor, eventually to Rome, had plans to go all the way to Spain. People globally are hearing the gospel. Somehow, some way, the gospel made its way to eastern part, eastern part of North Carolina, and we are the recipients of the good news of the gospel simply because of the faithfulness of God in times past, but specifically through that all nations would be blessed because of Jesus Christ and his ministry and those who follow. All the nations would be blessed. Right there, God says to Abraham, that the gospel is for more than just the Jews. That the gospel was proclaimed all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Well, wait a minute. I thought the gospel was a New Testament concept. I thought that the gospel in the new covenant, yes, fully revealed in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. But listen, all the way back, even in the creation event, and especially in the covenant promises to Abraham, we have, as Paul proclaims here, the gospel. It's incredible. So the question being, was Abraham justified by works? No, he was justified by faith. Are the Gentiles included in God's redemptive work? Are, are the Gentiles going to be reached? Are the Gentiles reachable? Are they beyond God's grace? No, they are included in God's redemptive work. And God said so all the way back in the covenant promises in Genesis chapter 12. But wait, there's more. It gets even more beautiful. Third question. Should both Jew and Gentile then be required to keep the law? Well, Paul's going to answer that, verse 10. He's going to answer it out of Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. So we've had Genesis 15, 6. We've had uh, Genesis 12, 3. And now we're going to have Deuteronomy 27, 26. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by these things. I know what it's like to come out of that curse. That takes me back to when I was 25. Born again at age 16, trying to impress God from 16 to 25 by doing good works, right around age 20, 21, you know what I did? I got, I got tired of trying to please God. I got tired of trying to check the boxes all the time. I got tired of trying to do all these things that people kept telling me to do. And no matter what I did, there was always more things that I had to do. I had to have a quiet time, and I had to pray, and I had to go to church. I had to do all these things. And I thought that if I did all these things, that God would be pleased with me. But the problem was, is the more that I did it, the more distant I felt from God. 
And so one day in my early 20s, I meet a group of guys who are living large, and I'm thinking, well, look, I need to shed all this because if I haven't done enough to please God at this point, then I'm just going to go live life that they are. And so I lived in rebellion for several years simply because I was angry with God because my works were never good enough. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like what Paul is describing. It was a curse, a curse I'd already been set free from and didn't know it. Isn't that crazy? I'm sitting in a jail cell with the door wide open whining and complaining at God because he's not doing what I want him to do. I'm sitting in a jail with handcuffs and shackles on my ankles that were completely loose and completely free, and I am in bondage because I chose to be in bondage. Because I kept trying to get God to like me by going to church and praying I never followed through because I had no desire to. There was, there was no desire to worship. And at age 25, a brother comes alongside me and begins to show me what Scripture actually said. And I want you to know I was bitter with God for a while. I was angry. But the crazy thing was I would still go to church. Oh, I'd go to church, but during the week I lived how I wanted to live. And I, and I was under conviction constantly, and there was no way for any work to get me out from under that. So I was under a curse, he says here. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why is that? He says, because if you go back to keeping the law, make sure you understand you've got to keep it all. What's God's standard of righteousness that you have to meet by keeping the law? It's perfection. Perfection. Absolute perfection. Not just in outward works, but in the heart motivations. The, the things that I think about, now get this, you might be able to, to do really well at outward works of the law. You, you, you might be able to, to really commit yourself to that thing and just, if we, if we just take the Ten Commandments, just take the Ten Commandments and, and you just make a commitment, I'm going to live these Ten Commandments out and I'm going to do it every day and outwardly I'm going I'm to take care of my parents and I'm not going to have any idols and outwardly you do those things. Well, let me ask you something. How's your thought life? Is your thought life the part that nobody sees, the part that nobody knows but to you and God, how is that going in keeping the Ten Commandments about what you think about other things that have your attention, how you're spending your time? I'll tell you how it's working for you. It's not. He says if you're going to go back down that path, you've got to keep them all. The standard that God has is absolute perfection. You'll never be able to go to church enough. You'll never be able to give enough. You can give all your wealth. You can give your home. You can give everything away. You can go to a mission field, and you can go there as a missionary, all while thinking that I'm somehow impressing God and that God's going to accept me and find yourself bitter and angry at God at the same exact time. Been there, done that. Paul says, you choose that, you're choosing a curse. Peter described it as a yoke around your neck. He says, curse be everyone. This is Deuteronomy 27, 26. Curse be everyone who does not abide by all things. Look at that, all things written in the book of the law and do them. Verse 11, now it is evident. Paul says it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. It's evident. That's Paul talking, who spent most of his life trying to keep the law. And he says, it's evident. When compared to Christ, when looking at the beauty of the gospel, it is evident 
that no one is meeting the standard. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All your righteousness is like filthy rags. All. Paul's going to include Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, and here's your next one, Leviticus 18.5. The one who does them all shall live by them. Here's what Paul's doing. Paul's sitting before the church at Galatia and before the church at Hyde Park. You've got two options here. You can go back to trying to keep the law, which is a curse. And if you go back to that path, you've got to keep it all. Every one of it, every one of those laws perfectly. Paul couldn't do it. Peter didn't do it. John didn't do it. And you're not going to do it. But just so you know, if you go down that path, it's a curse. It's a yoke around your neck. And you'll come to the same place that all who have tried it have, have come, and that is bitterness and anger with God. That's where you will end up. It's a curse. He said, but the other path is that the righteousness shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, Paul also quotes this in Romans 1. He says, there's another path that you simply believe God. Take him at his promises. Put your faith in him. Put your faith in Christ. And God declares you righteous. How in the world? How could that be? You see, if you fail in one of the law, one of the laws, you fail in all of them. I talked about the scales the last few weeks about how you're supposed to tip the scales. The fact of the matter is, if you think you're keeping the law 80%, you're still 100% lost. If I think I'm, if I think I'm keeping the law 99%, you're still 100% lost. If you think that justification will come by keeping the law and you're keeping it at a 99% rate, you're still 100% lost. Look, I know the math doesn't work, but that's the reality. You will never reach that level of perfection that God requires. We trust in the promises that God, that what he says he will do, he will do. How is this possible? So should Jew and Gentile be required to keep the law to be right with God? No. That is not the pathway to salvation. It is the pathway to being cursed. The law declares that you are unrighteous. That is the purpose of the law. And the law cannot fix your unrighteousness. It can't make you right. It just points out where you're wrong. And it's really good at it. It is consistent. And it is a package deal. You break one, you break them all. So there is no way that you're ever going to be able to live and worship and honor God by keeping the law as in the, in the, in the matter of trying to be justified. So how can I be right with God? Notice what Paul says next. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Folks, Listen, the depth of, what, of that one sentence, the depth of what Paul is saying here, we, we could spend weeks on this. But Christ, who knew no sin, born of a virgin, conceived in the womb of a, of a virgin, born into this sin-cursed world, he lives a perfect life. He keeps every aspect of the law, both outwardly and inwardly. Neither in his deed, nor in his word, nor in his action, or in his motives, did Jesus ever, ever sin at all. Not one time. But then, it says, he becomes a curse 
for us. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Long before the Romans ever existed, long before crucifixion was ever enacted by the Romans, you have Deuteronomy, Moses saying, anyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed. Jesus being hung on a tree, publicly dying, shedding his blood, not because of something he did, but because of something we did. Our sin, our evil, our rebellion is placed, imputed to Jesus. And in those moments on the cross outside the walls of Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha, there nailed to a cross, bleeding to death, suffocating to death, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God has turned the lights off. It is dark in the middle of the day. And in that moment, Jesus becomes the sin bearer of all humanity and all sin past, present, future, my sins, my evil, my lust, my greed, my lies, my hatred, everything that I've ever done placed upon Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, for all of the world to see. He is placed on a tree and he is cursed, not because of what he did, but because of what I did and because of what you did. And at the moment that I placed my faith in Jesus at age 16 on March 22nd, 1987, in that moment, I placed my faith in what Jesus did on that cross and his resurrection. And in a single moment of time, God takes Jesus' righteousness and he places it on me. Jesus being perfect in the law, God places that on me. I did not deserve it. I didn't work that out. I wasn't a good little boy. I was evil to the core and I was living in rebellion. But in God's good grace, not because of my works, I bowed my knee before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I put my faith in Jesus and he pulled me out of a pit and he saved me and he cleaned me up and he made me a son of God and he said in that moment, you are righteous. Not because of my works, but because of what Jesus did on my behalf. Folks, that is the gospel. That is the word of God and that is the beauty of the good news. I couldn't have ever worked that out. You can't ever work that out. How offensive do you think it is to God when he offers you, he's convicting you just like that wealthy uncle who's going to give you an extravagant gift. And you look at God and say, no, God, I got this. I got it. Trust me, you don't. I didn't. The truth of God's word says that you can be right with God, not because of works, but because of faith. The Old Testament does not teach a salvation by works. And the New Testament teaches a salvation by faith. We see the grace of God all through the pages of the Old Testament. Paul's not done with this argument. He's going to go even further. He's going to get into Moses. He's going to get into the law. And he's going to show us how the law, how, what the law means to us as followers of Jesus. Because it's not as though it's cast aside. It has an important part of our life. But nonetheless, it will never justify you. So just like what Paul did here for the church at Galatia, what he did is he said, let me take you to Old Testament truth and let me simply proclaim the truth to you that these are the promises of God. And what is left is for you to put your faith in a God who always keeps his promises. So let me, let me close by simply proclaiming the truth of God's word. And I want to speak to the non-believer I want to speak, those watching online, those who are here this morning, I want to speak to you. You've never put your faith in Jesus. 
You're relying on something else. Let me speak to you this morning. I want you to hear the word of God and his promises. Let's start with this season, this Christmas season. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jonathan had no idea that I was going to use this verse, but Holy Spirit led him to use it. John 3, 16 and 17. Hear the word of God. For so God loved, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. This is the truth and the promises that God has made. For those of you who've already put your faith in Jesus, listen to the word of God. To the believer, John chapter 5, verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. You have eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it into completion on the day of Jesus Christ. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Church, this is the Word of God. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park.